0: On today's episode, we've got Steve Mason, who's done a trip from Ushuaia all the way up to Alaska. He learned a lot on it and he's got some great tips and stories for you, so stick around for that. After that, we've got another Rider Skills segment with Brett Tax from PSSOR. And what we're going to tackle on this episode for Rider Skills is things that make us squirm after, Brett, we're going to introduce you to a brand new website that may change completely the way you research products, people, and places to go. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com and Best Rest products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag. and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you need when you exploring the world. Visit them at cyclepump.com That's cyclepump.com
1: I'm Sam Manicum, Nick Sanders. Terry Borden, Sandy Borden, Jack Borden, Graham Field, Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray, David Peterson, Rachel Ed March. Glenn Hickstead, Dr. Gregory W. Fraser, Dave Barr, Alan Carl, Tiffany Coates,
0: Herbert Schwartz, Brett Tux,
1: Zoe Cannell, Nathan
0: Millward, Graham Hoskins, Joe
1: Russ.
0: Jeremy Craker, Simon
1: Thomas, Lisa Thomas,
0: Simon Pavey, Grant Johnson, Robert Wick, said Simon, I've been
1: sick, this is Nathan Millward, are listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
0: I've got Steve Mason here with a brand new book out. Now, you're going to remember Steve because Steve was on here before with his friends. They're friends that reunited and uh, and did a trip from uh, Ushuaia um, right on up to Alaska. And uh, we talked about their trip and their experience in it. Well, Steve wrote a book about it. The book is called Llamas, Bananas, and Bears. Steve, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio.
2: Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, good to have you on. So you did do it. You managed to get the book out. This is your second book, isn't it?
2: It is yes. Uh, this is to my book about a trip up to the North Cap in northern Norway called "Ride to the Midnight Sun."
0: So that has to feel pretty good. Now you're a, a full-on professional author, I guess you could say, as well as as well as motorcyclist.
2: Yes, well, I, I wouldn't say full-on professional author, but. I mean, it's, it's it's great to see them actually, you know, selling people reading them and uh, commenting on them. So it's really good.
0: Well, I love the type of books because um, it's the type of thing you can do when you're when you're not out riding. But it's also the, the type of things that uh, spurs on your imagination. You know, it gives you every, everybody's inspired by other things. I mean, let's face it, when they interview a musician, they're always asking, you know, what's your influences. Well, it's the same sort of thing with us, isn't it? With adventure riding, with the things that you want to do in life, you you look at what other people have done and you sort of use that to figure out what you want to do. And that's why it makes books like yours so valuable to us as riders and motorcycle enthusiasts.
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think most of us that, that start looking at the, the bigger adventures, uh, it, it all starts off with a program or a book or something like that. So, yes, definitely.
0: So let me ask, Steve, then, what are your influences for your motorcycle? Well, not your motorcycle riding, because I know you've been riding since you were a kid, but let's say for the real adventure travel.
2: It definitely was uh, the one that's normally spoken about the long way around was the first first one that kind of opened up the big long adventure idea to me. And, and and that took a while to achieve. But I mean, I basically wanted to go further than the bike, potentially not around the world, potentially not up through the Americas, but I wanted to go further afield. You know, my first book w- was basically about that, how to have an adventure without, you know, taking three and a half or four months out.
0: Yeah, the uh, the long way round series certainly put uh, adventure motorcycling on the map. I think everyone will agree with that. It was the, it's the thing that really sort of blew everything wide open, and I guess really showed us some possibilities. I mean, there's a lot of things people criticize with the film, and a lot of things people love about the film. But let's face it, it, it really opened the public's eyes to what you can do with a motorcycle.
2: It definitely did, and I mean, I, I know it's a hotly debated subject, but I'm definitely on the side of you know have your adventure. It doesn't matter. You know Whether you've got new bikes, old bikes, backup trucks or not, what those guys, I mean, taking the time out that they took out to go and do what they did, for me, was admirable.
0: And also to be so open about it. I think if any of us are filmed and really open about our feelings and about the things we do wrong, I think it's pretty easy to find fault in in what anyone does in life. Let's talk about Lemmas, Bananas and Bears, your latest book. It's about your journey from South America uh, to the tip of North America. It took you how long?
2: it took us four and a half months and uh, probably a year and a half of dreaming and preparation not that not that it takes that long to prepare but just giving the wife's notice and stuff like that
0: well that's really good you said a year and a half because you've 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 qualified as far as Chris Scott goes because Chris Scott says that you should be spending a minimum one year which i think is probably good advice for most of us so a year and a half i'd say that's that's healthy planning
2: Yeah, I think so. worked out really well. I mean, it enabled you to kind of catch on to some of the riders that were already doing it and and read some of the books. Yeah, and and that helps make it a a better adventure, really.
0: So the three buddies, it's yourself, Raymond and Wilson, off on this adventure. What did the adventure do for you in hindsight? How did it change you?
2: I have never been in a position before where I had lost track of time and... You know, once you're there and once you've spent a lot of the money, you know, the daily living expenses were, were not high. I was in a totally different mode. You, you were getting on your bike every morning and you're seeing something, you know, you're looking forward to what was round the next corner because we didn't do minute planning. We just, you know, took a day at a time uh, with some big milestones. But since then coming back, you know. It's just understanding how enjoyable life can be by, you know, just getting out there. But there's the adjustment of coming back and then there'd be an adjustment of going away again. So you've you've got to take all of that into consideration. These are all learning curves. Falling
0: into the rhythm really is what you're talking about you know getting up and doing that daily thing after you've done your traveling you've got there and you're sort of into it I mean I find it even just in a few days I can fall into a rhythm which I I very much enjoy where your focus is just on riding that's all you have to worry about you worry about you know having a, a warm place to sleep where you're dry you worry about getting some food in your belly and just otherwise riding the bike it it's just an amazing feeling but Steve tell me on this trip you did a year and a half planning, you obviously had a good idea of what you, at least what you expected. What was the trip actually like compared to what you expected in your planning process?
2: I would say that you should know, but but you don't know how uh, long the distances are. You know, when you really get there, it's just such an immense continent, an immense distance, uh, even down to Yosraia from Buenos Aires. So I, I think the whole distance thing took me by surprise. Just the, the range in temperatures, the differences in the countries, even from just crossing a border, in many occasions the country would look quite different and feel quite different. So, you know, you, you have visions of the scenery in your mind, for example, and, and it's always different. Certainly lived up, more than lived up to my expectations, put it that way. Aside
0: from the the cultural differences, which I think is is blurringly obvious from North America to South America, what were the topography differences or, or the climate differences that really struck you?
2: The very south of America, Pat- Patagonia and Canada and Alaska were similar in climate at the time that we went, and also the wilderness aspect of it, those were my actually my two favorite areas. Northern British Columbia and up through the Yukon, etc. And then obviously down in Patagonia between uh, Argentina and Chile. The centre of America, of the Americas, it was just amazingly, amazingly hot. So we did really, you know, go from snow, uh, not on the road, at the side of the roads, to just blazing hot temperatures in the middle part.
0: As you headed up into the Yukon, you're, of course, there at a time where the sun is shining pretty much uh, 24 hours a day, or I guess 24 hours a day at that point. What was that like?
2: It was was great. I think we got a good time of year because we got there before the mosquitoes were there, which I would imagine would be horrible. (laughs) Uh, What date did you get there? uh, Late May and early June. So it it worked out really well. It was still cold up in Alaska by the Arctic Circle. And uh, The permafrost is there and all the rest of it. But yeah, no, the, the light nights were fantastic. I had experienced the light nights in the North Cap ride because funnily enough, Dead Horse, which I didn't quite make due to the road closure, Dead Horse and uh, the North Cap are, are actually at the same northern latitude. So I, I'd been up above the Arctic Circle in, in Norway in that two-week ride.
0: So there's a bit of a familiarity there?
2: There is familiarity. This, you know, again, the Arctic Tundra and stuff like that. And again, that was a two-week ride. So that's why I'm a big advocate in saying an adventure, You know, it doesn't need to be four and a half months.
0: Did you do this in one sweep, the, the four and a half months?
2: Yes, the four and a half months was one sweep.
0: Because, I mean, there's a lot of people who are doing shorter adventures. You know, they'll go out for a couple of weeks and then store a bike and then come back and, and do another couple of weeks. And so when you went up to the top, how far did you get up north?
2: We actually split up the further north we went. And I went to a place called Happy Valley, which is 80 miles south of Ed Horse. The whole highway had been washed out uh, and it looked like a sea rather than a highway. But I got up to this place where the, to a road closure sign at Happy Valley, which was not necessarily a very bright thing to do. We were all doing it for different reasons, but mine was I had to go as, as far north as I could before nature stopped me. So that's where I ended up. Steve, as far as
0: equipment goes, what like for those who are listening now who are thinking of doing something similar, um, what sort of equipment did you find that that you took with you that was really important that that you wouldn't do without, and maybe something that you wished you had have taken? And, and I mean, I, this could be gear that you're taking for camping or you're equipping your bike with.
2: There was many, but you know, some of the highlights I, I had, I had hard panniers, and I know that's a, there's a big debate there, and I had a couple of hard uh, offs on the road. Uh, and I think the hard panniers saved my trip. They were made by a company called Bumot in Bulgaria, and, and I just I think they were great. They were absolutely fantastic, tough, really tough as old nails, and well-tested. And the other thing, things that we took that was not so useful was, for example, we took a camping stove with uh, the gas cylinders, and, and those were difficult to get down in, in uh, Argentina and Chile, and Central America, almost impossible, so you know, we, we had very little use of out of it. You know, so the various things. The type of tents we took were absolutely perfect in the US and Canada because you've got space and room to, to camp. But if you're ever in a, a campsite in, the, in Chile or Argentina, they are so packed out at that time of year that we could hardly get the tents up so we could have done with a smaller freestanding tent. We took GoPro cameras that, we hardly used because it was just trying to get the, the batteries charged and switching them on and off I know it's a really bad thing to say because you're, you're on such a big trip and you should capture the memories but it was almost getting in the way of the adventure the gopro camera so very little use of them uh, but we had scala rider uh, communication system and that was a fantastic thing especially if you're going through a city or something where you might lose sight of each other but we for a, a reasonable uh, distance you could keep in touch
0: yeah, and that's the, the Bluetooth-style setup?
2: Yeah, the Bluetooth, yeah, they were really, really worth
0: it. I tend to really connect with you as far as saying about the filming because it. You know, I think often you've got to decide what your priority is for your trip, whether you're going to just enjoy the trip or whether you're going to worry about filming it to show afterwards. I've spent a lot of years, uh, my adult life, guiding wilderness trips and taking people out. And quite often I'll, I'll tell people, you know, before we're heading out that you may want to just think about your camera before we get into a situation where quite often it was encounters with whales. And I would say just you know, decide now whether you'd rather just take it in and have that moment that you can explain to people, or whether you want to waste the time trying to zoom in and focus on this moving target, you know, while you're paddling your own boat, that sort of thing. It, it's 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 sort of it's it's almost two different things. It's very difficult to do both.
2: I totally agree. I, I do totally agree. You almost miss it and then you've got to watch the film that you took that you weren't really there. So Yeah, uh, and yeah. then you look at it afterwards <laughs> and it's think, all blurry and it's shaken
0: yes. and you've missed it and, yeah. and it's like you missed the whole thing thing because you were so worried about trying to get it on film it 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 completely takes away from it even setting up like for video cameras you don't want to just do your whole thing from your helmet cam you got to set it up at different locations it takes a certain kind of dedication for it
2: yeah you do and 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 i found well quite early on i think it was in chile i stopped and i thought i better use this thing i better set it up so i stopped to set it up and my sight stand went into the loose gravel and my bike fell over so i thought okay (laughs) there you go and that's your picture (laughs) right there
0: (laughs) so how about some stories uh what what can people expect to read in the book without giving away the whole thing
2: yeah I, i mean it just it did really turn out to be an adventure and certainly the adventurous things I think came my way and we talked the, the last program about we had a, a major front tire blowout in Bolivia and ended up with a a tire that was the wrong kind the wrong size it was made in China it was nylon an and I did 1200 miles over the Andes a couple of Andes crossing and that I had a, a big off in Panama where uh, and it, it was Barack Obama and the, the other America's presidents were in town and and I was hit with the uh, some of the security staff that were preceding his motorcade.
0: And even though they clipped you, didn't they?
2: They clipped me. Yeah. So that that was quite a sore one, but an interesting one to read about. Especially
0: when they clip you and they sort of treat you like you've done something wrong.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It was it was not a good experience at the time, and it certainly put my bike into a bent shape all the way up to LA.
0: Well, and and I, I spoke with Barack Obama after we talked last time and he, he said he deeply apologizes about that.
2: <laughs> right, I'm glad to hear that, Jim. Glad to hear. <laughs> yeah, and then I had the, uh, you know, I've I had some great animal encounters. Uh, when I say that positive animal encounters, I didn't hit anything up in Canada with, with uh, I saw three grizzlies and, you know, so I enjoyed all of that and I had a a bit of a, a coming together with a Canadian wooden bridge, which is another good story. So we had to backtrack to uh, limp back to Vancouver. And that, that was a, a, another interesting part of it. So, it's a real adventure uh, in terms of sights, sounds, Peruvian demonstrations. So lots to read about, lots to enjoy.
0: Well, the book is called Llamas, Bananas and Bears, and it's by Steve Mason. And it's available where, Steve?
2: It's available on Amazon, so you can either have it in paperback version or or Kindle version.
0: Steve, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks for all, all your work. I'm enjoying Adventure Rider Radio. Cheers. Bye.
0: I've been speaking with Steve Mason about his book, Llamas, Bananas, and Bears, and his trip, of course, from Argentina to Alaska by motorcycle. You can find his book on Amazon, and it's available in both Kindle and paperback. (laughs) The best way to ride is to make riding your easiest, fastest way to get from A to B. Simply everyday commuting and errands, long distance, adventure riding, or whatever. And for 33 years, AeroStitch has been designing, making, and selling equipment that makes riding anywhere in all weather easier, safer, more comfortable, and more fun. No other rider's gear offers the proven protection, precise fit, and lifelong value of AeroStitch. So you can prove it to yourself with a ride more guarantee if you try any AeroStitch one-piece R3 or Road Crafter Classic suit for one month, and you're not riding more than you did. Before you received it, then you send it back and you can get a full refund. But something tells me you're not going to bother sending it back because you're going to fall in love with the Aero Stitch quality. It's www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Make sure you put that forward slash ARR in so they know where it came from. Look, today I want to um, point out something I've been looking at online here. I've been looking at the pants, really. I need a, a new set of pants. And um, the pants, the ultimate pants I would like at this point, are a, a pair of Aero Stitch pants. I've been looking at the AD1 pants. And comparing them to the Darien, I I think I told you about the Darien a a few episodes ago, but I wanted to point this out because this is uh, an indication of Arrow stitch quality, okay? When you read the description, you click on, actually, there's the this is a little link on there for, for more um, additional information, is what it is, on the uh, uh, a comparison of the Darien versus AD1 pants. So it goes on to say about the difference between the pants. One of the things that I noticed right off, is the belt that it comes with, it's one of their travel belts. It's a money belt, is what it is. And that's included. That's part of the pants. But one of the other things I noticed right off the bat is that the knees are bent a couple of degrees more. And it says, which is nice for bikes with a little more rear position footrest. So if you're riding like an F800 compared to a a KLR, this can make a difference. It's this kind of detail that really gets me. When you put this much detail into pants, you know that somebody is into riding. They take it very seriously and it's high quality. As I mentioned before, the Aerostitch quality I think is second to none. It's amazing stuff. Drop by their website www.aerostitch.com forward slash arr and and when you go there, make anytime you're dealing with Arrow Stitch, make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know where we're coming from. And by going to forward slash ARR and letting them know you're from Adventure Rider Radio, you're going to get either 10% off on your first purchase or if you're a return customer, you're going to get free shipping. Uh, I think it's in the United States. But think about that 10% off as a new customer. If you're buying a full suit, 10% off a full suit is a good chunk of money. Drop by aerostitch.com forward slash ARR and let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. This is the fourth episode of our Rider Skills Series that we've started with Brett Tax from PSSOR, and it's a collaborative effort between Adventure Rider Radio and Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, which um, we think does amazing off-road training courses. And Brett Tax, I'm sure you've learned by now. If you've heard him over these four episodes, you realize that he really knows what he's talking about, and he's world-renowned as a, a trainer for adventure motorcyclists episode four is things that make us squirm and you might be able to relate to this so we're back again with rider skills brett tax from pssor or puget sound safety off-road brett is a as you know a professional off-road trainer and uh, we're putting together more of our series and today we're talking about things that make you squirm brett welcome back once again Again,
3: so happy to be back, and this is – I always get so excited about all the topics we're talking about. But this one, particularly last weekend, I uh, was out scouting and playing in a bunch of deep sand and and loose rock and – so just polishing my own skills up. So this is going to be fun to talk about today.
0: Well, and it's funny you mentioned that because I was also out, only this time I was out in snow and I rode for about an hour through snow, varying from 10 inches to maybe 14 inches. And um, I had a lot of fun dealing with, well, things that made me squirm.
3: Yeah, some. I, someday we're going to have to just talk about snow. And You know, a few years ago, we, uh, me and several other instructors went out on a ride and we actually put studs in our tires. Uh, rider Warehouse uh, actually sells those, and we studded up, and, and off into the snow we went on our big adventure bikes, and it was an experience for sure.
0: Well, I, I got to tell you, Brad, every time I talk to you, I'm learning so much, and, and each time I listen to you, I become a better rider. I'm telling you, it's 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 working for me, so this is great. Let's look at what are we talking about today when we talk about things that make us squirm?
3: Well, that's kind of a, a play on words because uh, we're going to talk about you know, I think we're really focusing a lot on sand, but also touch a little on loose gravel and, and mud. We touched on mud just a little bit the last time out. And I say that because, yeah, the bike squirms, but a lot of riders, when they think about riding through deep sand, that's one of the biggest fears they have. They, they really don't like that, and you just kind of watch them squirm in their boots when when you talk about that.
0: And a lot of this is going to take us back to things that we've already learned, and that's the whole idea of the, the Rider Skills episodes. This is going to take us back to our threshold detection in particular with episode one, isn't it?
3: I, I actually, it's really going to tie on to all of them. Uh, threshold detection and, and traction management. Uh, power management becomes very, very critical here. And of course, at the school here, that's the idea is to train people and give you the skills in these, these micro sets as you build up. And once you have that base, the idea is then to repackage them and to utilize them in different environments or more challenging environments. So absolutely we're gonna we're gonna review some things and just keep expanding on what we've already talked about in the the last three episodes.
0: Okay, well, I guess what we should start off with before we get into these things that make us squirm sand in particular, um, maybe we should just cover a bit of review, things that are, are um, germane to what we're going to talk about today.
3: So, perfect. So, one of the first thing we, we talked about was a concept I referred to as the weightless rider, and, and we discussed quite a bit about just getting up on the bike and letting the bike move freely underneath us, where we aren't muscling the bike, where we're not trying to make it do what we want to do. The reality is on the motorcycle, we're seldom the one in control. We're more like the captain of the ship. We tell it where to go. The crew makes it happen. The bike just happens to be the crew. And that becomes, uh, I did a lot of photo and video review on this this practice last weekend to watch my own riding skills. And it, it was just so clear and evident how how important this was. And, and we'll talk about that as we go through. Threshold detection was one of the things we discussed, and that was just knowing how to determine slip, how to feel it, and know where those limits are. And we'll have a very significant advancement on that concept uh, through this episode. And then we, on the last one, we talked about obstacles going over and the mindset of, of walking up and making sure we can accomplish this stuff before we overcommit. But also we got into mud and we talked some about the way the bike holds itself upright, the geometry of the bike and rake and trail. And, and certainly that's going to become even further amplified and further explained in this episode, because the more you understand about the bike, the more relaxed you can be, the more relaxed you can be, the easier it is to ride, the easier it is to ride, the easier it is to, ride, it is to detect threshold and to manage with fine motor control
0: skills. Well, let's jump in then right into the sand. What is it about sand that makes us squirm?
3: I think everybody has the same image. They get into the sand, the bike starts moving back and forth and wiggling, the serpentine motion, the front end buries, and they bury. And most of us, when we first get into this, or first time we get into sand, experience either a very scary situation of a near fall, or we actually bury the front tire and we come off the bike. And that really reinforces any initial fears we might have. And after that, you're kind of fighting a little bit of an uphill battle.
0: The whole thing is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? You, you go into the sand and nothing feels right. It doesn't feel like anything you've ridden before.
3: Most of the time that is the case. And I'm going to jump right into what most people hear for advice in sand. And I, I happen to, what I would consider where I really came over the top and, and became comfortable in sand and took it into play was when I was down in Mexico. Uh, the first time I, I took a big bike was a big V-Strom. Ah, uh, one thousand. I took it out, and and almost the entire trip through Baja was this really deep sand. And and after a while, you just you got so tired, you you kind of had to let go and relax. But the advice we all hear is just add throttle. You know, get get more speed, and and just add throttle. And there's a huge issue with that. First of all, we're on six hundred pound bikes. We're not on dirt bikes. And we've we've brought this up before. So they they may act like dirt bikes to some degree, but they are not. And they certainly don't crash the same. And at some point on a big bike, you have a 100 horsepower plus bike. You're going to be going really fast and you've got a lot of gear on board. And when things go bad, they're going to go bad in a big way. So that's really not uh, the advice we want as adventure riders.
0: So should we get right into talking about what we do with our throttle, or or we, maybe we should back up and say, okay, what is, what, how do you describe your approach to coming into sand? So we've ridden along a trail. We come up now to a huge sandy section that we're going to have to cross, and I'm not talking just a bike length, a, a bit of sand. What's our approach?
3: Well, the idea here is really just to keep the bike in control. And uh, let's go back and just kind of understand what's going on with the bike and why we feel the bike move around so much. The back tire is always pushing through the front tire. I mean, I mentioned that before. And what that means is the front tire is constantly moving to the left and to the right. It's this little serpentine. If you drew a uh, a line on the ground where the tires were going down the road, you would see that the front tire is actually wiggling back and forth and the back tire is kind of riding a line through the middle of it for the most part. And... On the road it's so small and so minor, we have so much traction, you hardly notice it. And even on gravel roads and hard packed dirt roads, the traction is actually pretty darn good in those situations. And as soon as you get into sand, there's really nothing hard underneath it. So as it pushes forward and starts to turn slightly, and, and this is what rake and trail is all about on a motorcycle, is to keep that that tire coming back to a center position. So it's swinging left and comes back to center and it swings to the right and comes back to center. And as it turns just slightly, you'll get a buildup of sand up against the tire, which kind of causes an increase in motion. And it also dampens the movement for coming back to center same same sensation uh, is when you get too tight on the bars when you hold on tight in loose traction situations mud and things that we were talked about because you're holding on to the bars you almost work like a steering damper so it, it turns to the left but it can't recenter as fast so it travels a little farther to the left than it normally would sand causes that same thing it buffers and pushes tire uh, sand up against the tire and it pushes a little farther to the left than it would if it was on pavement but it still comes back to center but once it comes center it kind of over overshoots it goes to the right and then again sand kind of pushes up against the front edge and it pushes a little farther to the right than it should and then it comes back to middle and so you get this this very strong sensation of the front end moving left and right and the back moving left and right and that's what makes us so nervous
0: This serpentine back and forth, that's bike dynamics. That's how it works. The tires always want to get directly underneath the weight. So it's working back and forth. I know that from learning from basic street riding. But um, this motion of it going back and forth is something that definitely wants us up on our pegs, right? Because if you're sitting there, you've slowed the whole movement down.
3: Well, I think you just nailed it spot on. And like you said, the bike wants to get back over the center of the bike. It wants to be back over that balance point. So it's constantly moving back to get the center point. I think as riders, we forget that's where we wanna be. We wanna be over the point where the back tire and the front tire are actually touching the ground. And if you're sitting, then every time that front end deviates to the left, the seat deviates slightly with it. And that means you're carrying more mass and that amplifies the motion to the left and it makes it far worse. When you're up on the pegs and, you, and you're incorporating this weightless rider concept, when the bike moves left, it moves independent of you and your upper body stays directly over the center patch of the tire. And if I'm taking pictures and you're doing this right, but if I take videos and pictures of you as a rider, which we do a lot of the times during our training and I do it for self-development, you can see that the rider is still straight up and down and this bike is actually f- almost flopping around left and right underneath the rider. But that's what takes the energy away, so you're not working so hard to keep it upright, and it actually allows the bike to respond much quicker, and makes it more uh, makes it not only feel more stable, but it is more stable.
0: And yet, that's exactly what people don't want to do. You don't want to stand on the pegs because the bike starts to move around on you, and people have a tendency to often I, I see people sit down and put their feet down a lot of uh, the the paddling through the the sand
3: exactly which is mistake number one with bigger mistake number two mistake number one is dropping to the seat which raises our center of combined rider uh, rider bike mass so now the center of gravity is essentially moved up on the bike when you sit down on your seat the second thing you do is you throw your legs out and you know so many of us ride with hard panniers on the bikes but now your your feet are dangling out there you can get sucked back against the bags and you can't hold and control the bike because your lower body is no longer connected. You're just you're you're just set above the seat, pivoting randomly wherever the bike wants to go. And the idea that you can put your feet down and save a 600 pound bike is a little well, it's kind of dangerous you know, well, to think we can do that.
0: That's often what you see just before the bike goes down, isn't it?
3: And why we had such a lengthy discussion about the selection of boots uh, some time back because it's that is such a High risk injury location off road to begin with, but you ride a 600 pound bike and you put a big chunk of square metal right behind your foot, you're just asking for a really good day to turn into a really bad day.
0: Yeah, and for those who didn't hear the the boot coverage, it wasn't in the, our rider skills section. It was we actually did it some time ago. Do you remember when we did that?
3: Uh, I don't remember. It was uh, maybe a month or so prior to our first uh, writer skills. And I think that was actually one of things that kind of launched us into this whole thing is going, gosh, there's a whole lot of things that, that writers could benefit from, even – even on the radio when they can't see things.
0: Yeah, because we, we started talking about the boots and it sort of took us off in a whole bunch of different directions, which, which led us to putting this, this series together. And, and maybe what we'll have to do is we'll have to add that boot section back in again. Uh, or, or we'll talk about uh, clothing, I think, uh, somewhere down the road here. But, but let's back up. We're getting excited uh, and we're, we still haven't crossed the sand yet. So we're coming to the sand. We already understand we're going to have to stand while we go through the sand. What are we doing?
3: Okay, so thanks for keeping us on focus here. The, the idea here that a lot of people can connect with is sort of like watching a boat out on the water. And if you think of your motorcycle, and some of these are kind of big boats of motorcycles anyways, but if you watch a boat out on the water and they start throttling up just slightly, you'll notice the, the boat is deep in the water and it's pushing this big wake all the way around it. And that's the same thing our bikes do when we're coming to these really slow and, and we just start burying that front tire in deep. So the person on the boat, they throttles up, they get extra, extra power, and it gets the front of the boat what they call up on plane. And it means that the boat's sitting now up on top of the water. It's not down and deep in the water. And once they get up on top of the water, you don't see them keep adding on more and more and more throttle. They actually trim back the throttle just enough to stay up on plane. The boat's more stable. It goes faster. It takes less fuel. This is the same concept we apply when riding in sand on these big bikes. So as you get into the sand, I want my front tire as much on top of the sand as I do down inside of it. The other similarity between a boat and a bike, a heavy bike in sand, is that you rudder in a boat. So the way this works on a boat is when you steer – it has a delay in its steering because it's not actually connected tight like a, a car. You steer a car, it instantly responds. And a boats, they wait just a little bit and a new person in a boat may oversteer and cause the, bite, the boat to, to bite in very tight and then it cuts into the wake and people fly off the boat and everybody laughs and giggles and that's all fine. The same concept happens on these big adventure bikes. And what'll happen is as you're riding, you start to give a little bit of steering input, but the bike doesn't respond instantly. So we don't think that we've steered enough that we steer more or we give more steering input. And then by the time it actually starts to turn, it's too much. It bears front tire and we come off the bike. So we want to be able to get that front tire up on top of the plane and give very light inputs and allow some delay between the inputs we allow on the bike. So that's one of the the main concepts about riding in sand as opposed to on most of the riding conditions that we're going to be on on a bike.
0: So, there's a sweet spot for speed. you're You're looking for that sweet spot where you're where you're just getting that tire floating and you're getting some forward motion, but you're not wildly spinning it and you're not gaining speed all the time. you're You sort of find a certain speed for that particular type of sand you're in.
3: And that's the key there is that you're not gaining speed and this is where the myth of add throttle came into play because if you're if you add throttle you're essentially getting the front wheel up on top of the sand and on a dirt bike you can go very very fast on the adventure bikes speed is relative we need enough speed to be stable. So we're not buried down inside, but we don't—we're not racing these things, and we shouldn't be racing them. So this is where using that enough throttle at the back just to get it up, and then we trim it back a little bit. And in the the detecting threshold or traction threshold, we talked about the clutch clutch usage, and I refer to this as kind of a gray zone uh, or kind of clutch where the clutch isn't all the way out or all the way in and what will happen is once you get the front end up into the sand and we're using throttle to get it up there at some point you'll feel less stable or you start going too fast so the question is how do I keep the bike up on plane without actually going too fast and that's, that's kind of where the next thing comes into play here and one of the ways you can do that is by using this clutch gray zone so if I start going a little too fast I can feather the clutch just a little bit so that it decreases a little bit of power to the back without actually causing any forward load on the tire. Because if I chop the throttle shut, the bike will, will pitch forward on the front wheel, it'll, it'll bury the front wheel, and you'll end up turning sideways and again going over the top of the bike.
0: Now, when we're riding in, in poor traction areas, a lot of times, in certain circumstances, you'll slide yourself forward to put weight on the front wheel. That's not the case here, is it? We're trying to put more weight to the back.
3: Exactly. Because the, the goal here, like with obstacles, uh, the last time we spoke where we're trying to get the front end light. This is another situation where we're trying to get the front end light. And so, yes, this weightless rider being able to shift as far back on the bike as possible, and again, using your legs to, to lodge into the seats and the adventure seats are actually really good for this most of your adventure bikes have a wedge type of a seat. So they come to a tip and they sort of flare out because they're they're not just like a dirt bike where there's skinny banana seats. They, they expect you to be sitting on them quite a bit. Uh, but this allows us to slide back. And if we keep our knees at the same same distance apart, you'll wedge into the back of that seat. That allows us to stay loose on the grips because if we're holding the handlebars, the same thing's going to happen with that oscillation left and right. It's not going to be able to respond as quickly as it can if it's just, it's just the rake and trail making the correction as opposed to the rider.
0: Now let's just say we did everything right. And well, no, let me say that again. We didn't do quite everything right, but we've managed to stop ourselves in the sand. How do we get going?
3: That's a that's a very good one. Um, and Before we go there, there's one other little tip I'd like to throw out there because when we start going too fast, this is when we end up in the stop situation that you're bringing us to. So let me talk about how not to get stuck in the sand like you're talking first. One is, again, as you're shifting back, you start getting speed up, is to feather the, the clutch back and in. That's just to keep forward momentum, but without having too much throttle and without pitching the bike forward. The other thing that we can do is trail the rear brake. So if we just use rear in the sand, because, you know, I'm a huge advocate, both brakes all the time. This is one of the very few exceptions. If you trail the rear brake, it'll actually cause the back to dig down just slightly into the sand and actually put more load on it, which may give us more traction and still get the front tire up even further. So that's what we do to not get stuck. If you do get stuck, now we're dealing with the situation you're talking about.
0: So you're standing there. Now your bike is stopped and sunk in. It's, it's probably your worst position to be in. Obviously, it would have been much better to just keep going the whole way across. And I, I think the biggest problem with this is just getting that momentum, just getting the bike so I can get back up on the pegs again. And
3: there's two ways to do this. And I we've all been in situations where riding out of the sand is no longer an option. And others where we may have enough traction to get out of the sand. Again, this all makes a big difference. Are we talking super deep, soft, dusty sand? Or are we like, uh, is it wet sand? Is it a beach? Does it have rock mixed in it? All this stuff is going to make a difference. But if, you, if you're if you just really stuck and you're new to the sand and you're not very good about this this clutch control, power control, and weight stuff, it may be a good idea to get off the bike and to power the bike out using these same techniques so we're not pushing it out but if you get off the bike so you uh so you're beside it so you can give a little better push forward to give it a little boost to get going then what you can do is use the the gray zone, that friction zone where you add throttle, just just enough power where the back end is almost creeping, wanting to spin in the sand, but not actually spinning. Because as soon as the back tire starts spinning, you're dead in the water. You're just digging a deeper hole. You're getting rid of all the traction that is there. You just let it creep out nice and slow with a little extra push uh, as the riders. That's one way to do this.
0: So how about if we want to ride it out and we feel we can? All right.
3: So there's two possible solutions here depending on where your feet are. If you're in a narrow track and you have solid ground on either side, you may be able to, to substitute that same technique we just talked about, meaning that I can push, with the, push against the handlebars, push against my feet, and then use the clutch to creep it out. What generally works for me is to actually get more weight on the back tire. And so this means kind of standing back, and often it's one foot on the peg because I'm actually wanting – to load the back axle and see if I can get it to have a little more grip, and that also allows me to get shifted back and keep the front end light, so I can crawl up and out of the sand. And then again, same thing: add throttle, very very light, just enough to get a forward creep. And then once the bike is moving, immediately get back up on the pegs. and And if you do this well, your seat, your rear end, your butt will never touch the actual seat on the motorcycle. You're weighting the outer peg, whichever one, left or right, depends where your traction's good. You get the bike motion and the other foot comes up and onto the peg.
0: You know, here's a question that just comes to mind as we're talking about this. What if you haven't got confident getting up on your pegs? You don't want to ride across the sand. I guess the method would be just what you described there, to walk it across? That's certainly a
3: very safe way to do that is if you stand next to the bike and use the the power of the bike to walk it across. That's a very effective way. In fact, I just shot a video to help people out. A a very common question I get asked is, how do I get my bike in the back of the truck, these big, huge bikes? And people wrestle these things up. And knowing the plan ahead of time is a really good way to go. And I just use the clutch to walk the bike up and it, it pulls me along. And if we do the same concept, getting across the sand, Maybe one thing you should do is what we talked about last time, put the side stand down, walk out in the sand, see how deep it is, see if this is something you can or can't walk through, but stand next to it and just let the bike power around. Find the most solid ground you can and and just power all the way through, and that's certainly an option. Um, The other thing you could do if you're that nervous about it is pull your luggage and panniers off. Lighten up the bike if you can, get it through the area that you're concerned about, pack your stub over and put it on the bike. That's certainly an option.
0: But really, the best idea, I'm thinking as you're even saying that, the best idea, if you're at that point, I would say sign up for a course and learn it because it's just um, it's so freeing being able to do it, having the, the confidence to at least give it a go.
3: I, well, obviously, I'm biased. I believe that heavily, but it's also something I subscribe to. I take classes every time I come across one. I just did a... Over in Spokane, Washington, where we're doing our next adventure camp this uh, this season, or one of the camps we're doing, the dealership hosted a release of the New Mexico Backcountry Discovery Route movie, and the – The person hosting it from the backcountry discovery route is a former student of mine. It's a Uh, lady that did it. And I was watching the movie and I could see exactly where she had taken training. And you could see the bike moving underneath her and you could see her staying relaxed. And they're riding through mud and they're riding on these gravel roads. And you could see the other riders who were not graduates of the program and how much they struggled and how much they fell down and how much things that happened to them. And it does make a huge difference when you know how to ride. These things that just really cause people to get into trouble. They cause them to get injured, to cause them to get broken. Very often, they're just not that difficult if you actually know what you're doing and you're practiced at it.
0: Well, you just said about getting broken. Let's talk about if you've dropped the bike now in the sand, what are some methods to to pick it up in sand? And what are the difficulties of it?
3: Well, the biggest difficulty is just going to be the fact you don't have very good traction often as a rider. Um, And then also, where's your traction going to be once you stand up? Um, Knowing how to pick up your bike or knowing how to use counterweighting lifting techniques, uh, multiple rider techniques are are certainly something that we spend quite a bit of time on uh, during the expeditions, our tours and our our camps, because that's a, a critical skill. But one of the things we do find not only in sand, but also in mud is when they we dig down, that's often what we do just before we tip over. And so if you stand it up, you're sitting in this deep rut. So take the time to figure out what your plan is going to be before you pick it up. So look where the tires are. If it's going to be deep, maybe you need to backfill it in or put some kind of traction Underneath the back wheel, whether it's a, a tarp you find or sticks or whatever. So when you stand the bike up, it's not down so deep, it's up on something. So it gives you a chance to get going again. The other thing is if you have a large channel in front where the front tire is buried itself deep. Before you pick up the bike, and I do mean before, you might want to go up there with your hands or if you carry a shovel with you and dig the trough out in front of it so it's got level ground to get moving before it has to pop up on top of the sand or mud, depending on what the situation is. Because the same technique applies in both.
0: And part of the payoff of you saying that planning, and I'm sure that's what you're saying as well, is that uh, it's energy. Because how many times are you going to be able to pick this bike up before you're completely sacked out of energy, which is going to affect your entire ride?
3: You couldn't have summarized our training better. The, the whole goal is how do you do more with less energy and how do you decrease your risk? And every time you tip over in the sand, you're going to burn energy up. If you're holding on tight because you don't know how to, you're going to burn energy. If you have to get off and walk it across, you're going to burn energy. And the more energy you burn, the more fatigue you have, the less your body responds the way you want it to, the less our minds stay crisp where we can plan and we either run at a very high risk or we really reduce the amount of mileage or distance or places we can go.
0: And by the time you come into camp, you feel like you've been thrashed all day rather than feel like you had an exhilarating day.
3: Yeah, you want to stop and be be excited for the next day and excited what happened and and not completely and totally exhausted. You want to be able to set up your tent and take the time to cook a good dinner, not pull out some military rations or some freeze-dried food. As you can tell, I'm not a fan of that Uh, You want to be able to have a real meal and have enough energy to enjoy everybody and not wake up sore the next day or injured.
0: Now, what about airing the tires down? This is a common approach for crossing sand.
3: This is actually one of the few places I, I agree airing down can make a big difference. We brought up on the last episode we were going over logs and I talked about some of the concerns with logs and large rocks about airing down. That you have these huge bikes that when they plow into this stuff on a sharp edge, they can bend the rims very easily or pinch a tire. So you can't air them down like a dirt bike. You can do that in the sand because you don't have a high impact. So if you let the air out, you can get more surface area and the tire kind of looms out and it can hold more area and it can crawl
0: out. I was going to say anytime we're airing down, we have to be careful of airing down too much and not just for like even, even the sand, not for hitting an obstacle necessarily, although there may be rocks in the sand, but for spinning the rim.
3: And that's exactly what I was going to next is you. You have to be careful you don't spin the tire on the rim. And that's what people don't understand. Dirt bikes have what are called rim locks. And these are piece of metal or a metal reinforced with rubber that when you put the tire on, it clamps the, the tire from the inside against the rim so that the tire can't actually spin on the rim itself. Adventure bikes don't have those.
0: What about um, things to be aware of, just an overall things that, to be cautious of? And I'm thinking, you know, whether it's climbing a hill in the sand or, or gullies or rocks or debris in the sand, um, what about those sorts of things? What comes to mind?
3: Don't get over your head and don't go too fast. The speed thing, if you're going to fall down, it's much better to fall down at a lower speed at 15, 20 miles an hour than it is to fall down at 50 miles an hour and if you're doing 20 in the sand that's a pretty good that could be a fair clip you know to keep up on top of it and then also pay attention to what your where your load is if you have a very heavily loaded bike and you have all this stuff on the back it's an amplified motion so when the back end swings or the back end moves left or right it's going to have more momentum carrying it left or right so if the bike is lighter then it's not going to have as dramatic a movement either way the other thing is digging down into the sand. When you have all this extra weight, it's going to push down. And and this is, again, talking back uh, down in Baja, Mexico, which I love doing. Uh, we'd come up to where there was some wet sand around a pond area, and they'd have torrential flooding there uh, just shortly before we arrived. And we could see this tread going around it with these dirt bikes had gone all the way around. And the guy I was riding with was on a Kawasaki KLR 650. And he rode on that same track. And next thing we knew, he was down to the skid plate and axles.
0: So the lighter bikes, the the dirt bikes, they rode right over it.
3: They could run higher speeds. And
0: they were 200 pound, 250
3: pound bikes as opposed to, you know, 600 pounds with a rider on, you know, plus a rider, you know, trying to get through there.
0: And sometimes that's what happens with soft material, isn't it? You ride into an area and momentum is everything. If you don't have it right, you're not going to get through.
3: That's absolutely right. But what we do have to keep in mind is that even if we misjudge the speed we need to get all the way through, if your reaction is I'm going too fast, I'm going to chop the throttle, or I'm going too fast, I pull the clutch and completely disengage it, then you're going to end up stuck. And we need to be able to have the confidence and the skills to know how to decrease that speed, decrease the risk, but without cutting power completely or without creating great changes in geometry or loading um, on the bike itself.
0: If you're lucky enough to ride in an area where there's sand dunes, where there's some place that you're actually going to end up going up and down fairly big hills, is there any technique for going down the hill?
3: Down the hill is, it's really no different than going on flat ground. Going up has a little different technique, but downhill is the same thing. Start slow at the top. It's a whole lot easier to take speed off at the top of the hill before you start going down than it is when you have gravity assist. Once you get gravity assistance, it gets a little hairier. So start slow, very, very slow, and keep the weight even more exaggerated towards the back. And you ride the same as a uh, flat ground. You keep your weight off the seat. You keep it at the back of the bike. You keep the front end light above it. You just may not have to require acceleration. You may just be trailing the rear brake to keep the front end uh, on top of the ground as you're going downhill.
0: And again, you're looking for that sweet spot speed-wise.
3: And that sweet spot's going to vary from rider to rider. Uh, if you're a newer rider, it's just fast enough where the bike becomes self-stable. A lot of times that's 15, 20 miles an hour, uh, maybe a little faster. And if you're a very experienced rider, you may go through that same area at 50. But for each rider, your comfort level and how stable you are, how quickly you can read the terrain ahead. And that's another thing that's really missed often. It may not be a skill issue. I may not be riding faster or slower because I'm better than you. I may just have better vision and I'm able to read the terrain and I can see, okay, that's going to be deep, soft sand. And adjust my speed early, where you may pick up on it at a later time. Or maybe your better vision, you can pick up on it much sooner, and that's going to make a big difference on our speed. It's not always skill that that causes a rider to go slower.
0: You mentioned before your your camps and your your multi day trips. Uh, I don't quite get the the what the difference is between them. But do you do you cover the stuff on that we're talking about on those trips?
3: We do. the The camps themselves are very well designed program to isolate skill sets and this is one of the number one skill sets we focus on our our sand especially for in spokane washington and in uh, idaho city uh, just above boise idaho where we have these huge areas and they have this deep sand and they have hills and they have all these things that we can go into and just practice these skills time over time, over time, over time, lap after lap and hone them and polish them so that when we're out on the trail or on a real ride, it's not the first time and you're not nervous about it. That's not the time to learn a new skills when you're when you're being challenged by if I don't make it, you know, we're we're dead in the water. And you asked you you mentioned the difference between our training tours as opposed to the camps and the tours are for those guys that are just they just want to go. They're like, you know, I like the idea of training, but man, I just want to get out in the mountains and I want to, I want to experience this firsthand. They're the ones that, when they want to learn a foreign language, they're going to go to the country and wander around till they figure it out. And the training tours and the training expeditions we have are just that. We bring you out. We spend a day or half a day just getting all the core skills we needed. many of the things we've already talked about, just so that we can get into the next, the next challenge. And what we do is each time we're coming into a new terrain feature, we stop as a group, we learn the skill sets we need, and then we ride into it. But instead of being at an, an area that's isolated and we, we stay there the whole time, we're moving along the mountain range, the Cascade Mountains or, or along the the riverside of Oregon you know, down in the Columbia Gorge. And we get to do it as an immersion-style training as opposed to – what might be akin to a college type learning course.
0: So if you were after more of a concentrated learning process, that would be the camp. Um, If you want to, like you said, learn on the go, that would be the multi-day excursion.
3: Absolutely. Yes. That's exactly the way those are set up. And price wise, when, when somebody's looking at the two, they go, well, the camps are a little less money than the excursions. And, it works out until you start pricing it down and realize the excursions are fully supported. So we're providing lodging and hotels and food for most of it. Every time we're out in the, in the back country where there's no restaurants or anything, we provide all the food and you have a truck behind you to pick you up. Plus you have instructors and you have a, a much fewer number of riders per Whereas the camps you're isolated there. So it's a training event. Although there are things we can do at the camps that we can't do along the the tour because again we get to construct each obstacle so we can put logs out where on the tour you know we may not crawl over those sort of things so there are some differences to them but price really shouldn't be the determining factor if somebody's looking at it they just need to grab what they know is going to work best for them
0: so brett what are we going to cover on the next episode What
3: we're going to do is dive into riding gear specifically. And it's not a topic a lot of people think about when they think of a riding skills segment or riding skills series, but gear can make a huge difference in protection and also warmth. It can make a difference in how we perform on the bike. And it's just really worth our time to discuss what we have and what we might want to upgrade or change in the future as riders.
0: Well, that's great. Until next time. Thanks, Brett. It was great to be on the show. We'll talk
3: next time.
0: Giantloopmoto.com. When you go there, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. The page I want you to go to is go to giantloopmoto.com and click on the link that says The Big Idea. It's only a couple of paragraphs there, but it really tells you what Giant Loop is all about. First of all, Giant Loop is well known for extremely high quality bags. Um, And they say on here the saddlebags have made hundreds of trips with riders under the most demanding conditions. Now, I told you before about how I know for testing, they're loading these bags up and they're literally beating them to death to find out where they fail and what goes wrong with them so they can improve them long before they get to market. So when you buy something from Giant Loop, you know it has been thrashed and bashed. You're not going to try it and find out there's some sort of design flaw partway into it. But they have an interesting thing on here. They talk about they've been out for 10 days self-supported camping trips. And they have yet to find themselves wanting for more space and stuff. They're saying typically riders stop for fuel and food almost every day. And once you pair your motorcycle kit down to the essentials, that's really what you need. You know, less is more sort of thing. Their motto is go fast, go light, go far. Amazing bags. Extremely durable. If you want something that you're going to keep probably for life... Drop by Giant Loop and check out their bags. Giant Loop is also the exclusive North American importer for Rally Raid products. That's turning your CB500 into the lightest, lowest seat height, dirt-capable, twin-cylinder adventure bike on the market. I'll give you an idea of the quality of the kits. Honda Canada has purchased at least one, possibly two, and put them on uh, a motorcycle that they're touring around all the shows, showing people what you can do with the CB500. If Honda Canada is buying the kit, it's got to be a good kit. So drop by their website. Anytime you're buying anything from them, use the promo code ARR, you know, for Adventure Rider Radio. That way they know where it comes from. And if you're in the U.S., that's going to get you free shipping on your products. GiantLoopMoto.com. I'm speaking with Ian Harper, who you may know from Jupiter's Travelers, but now you're going to get to know by his connection or running of the thing called Overland Junction. Ian, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio.
1: Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on again.
0: Great to have you back. You are really keeping busy here because you're not only doing the Jupiter's Travelers, but you've also started this new venture.
1: Yeah, it's certainly a busy time. Um, yeah, Overland Junction is is completely separate uh, to the Ted Simon Foundation and, and Jupiter's Travelers. Overland Junction is a brand new thing. It's, it's a business, just so there's no doubt about that. And th- there's kind of two sides to it, I guess. Um, From a a business perspective, it's a brand communications agency offering brand communications and digital marketing services to the adventure motorcycle sector. And then as far as riders are concerned on the other side of of the coin, the overlandjunction.com website is a platform for connecting riders first with adventure and then with the brands that encourage those adventures.
0: So the first look at the website, and when someone goes to it, they're going to see a bunch of articles on there, they're going to see pictures. Very impressive website. It's really nicely laid out, looks very interesting, and has a lot of captivating titles and things with pictures below them, connecting them to articles. So are we looking at an online magazine?
1: No, and I think this is an important thing to clarify, because it's very much not a magazine, and neither is it a discussion forum.
0: So why would someone come to Overland Junction?
1: where overland junction does something completely new and different and this is where i hope the uh, the the real utility will come from for for riders is the uh, the milestones feature so this is a cartographic archive of motorcycle adventures the milestones map is a map uh, a global map of motorcycle adventures around the world where each milestone each pin on the map represents a link to what details of and then a link to existing blog or video or forum ride report or social media content that that rider has already put online. So it's a way way for riders to to chart their previous journeys through the medium of their blog or social media content uh, to put those adventures in context, in geographical context with those of other riders. And that's, that's the really important bit. That's the, the clever bit, if you like, the useful bit.
0: So basically you can go to this page and you can sort of hover with your mouse over all the different points that are on there. And these little windows pop up and they give a, a short little uh, blurb about what is connected with that link. They can click on that and then it takes them somewhere else. Does it take them to a page on Overland Junction or does it take them to a, another website?
1: It first takes them to a page on Overland Junction. So each milestone has its own page. And that has the, a detailed map, so a zoomed-in map of exactly where that milestone is in the world. Uh, and there's you know, a picture and a brief description or e- extract um, about what that thing was about. And then there are links to the original content, but also to their social media profiles. And it also lists what brands they, they were using at the time and what bike they were riding and, and so on. So that gives you a, a rundown on all the information relating to that particular ride. But then you can go off, go to that person's website or their blog or Facebook page, whatever it might be, to get the full detail.
0: So it gives stats. You can look at it and you can see what bike they're riding. You mentioned the, the different brands that they may be sponsored by or that they're using for their expedition. could be handy for somebody who's looking, you know, considering what to buy for themselves to go out and do a certain trip or maybe looking for geographical information in an area that they would like to visit.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, there are various ways of, of filtering the milestones that appear on the map and searching through them. So for instance, you could do a search or a filter you know to, to show me all all of the milestones in across the whole of Asia, let's say, where riders were on either BMW bikes in general or, or, or a one specific model of BMW bike and where they were wearing a particular brand of boots. Because let's say that you're thinking of buying some new boots, you know you're going to be traveling in hot, humid conditions for an extended period of time. And you want to see, well, who's using what boots wear in similar conditions? So you can kind of narrow it down and say, oh, look, Norman McGowan, who's currently in India, is wearing former boots and has been wearing them all the way since he left the UK and has come across Europe, across Asia, he's got to India and he's carrying on towards Australia. And what does he think about former boots? Now, that's just one example there's all sorts of ways of slicing and dicing the information that's in there. But it's, you know, it's, it's hopefully a useful thing for people.
0: So the rider themselves would be putting something up on their blog or or on Overland Junction about what they thought of the boots or the products that they have listed. Do they go through and list all this stuff themselves?
1: Uh, well, in the milestone, when they're, when they're adding a milestone to the map, there's a four-step process. There's you know, giving it a title and a, and a description and adding a photo and you know, so forth. But the second step is saying what brand of motorcycle you're riding and what brands of gear, you know, clothing, boots, helmet, luggage, at the time of that particular milestone, which means that people can then say these are the people using the, this kind of boot, this kind of helmet or riding this kind of bike because they can connect through to their social media profiles or to their blog and then they can contact them and, and get some direct feedback.
0: You mentioned at the start something about connecting brands. Is this along the lines of how it does it?
1: this is certainly part of it yeah so another way of looking at it let's say that you're the owner of a company that, that sells products to the, the adventure motorcycle community or you're perhaps the marketing manager that works for one of these companies and you want to identify okay so who are all the riders and where are all the riders that are using our products and what are they doing and how are they promoting themselves you know having worked in marketing for many years myself i know how in, how useful that kind of information would be in general but especially so if if riders are being sponsored by particular companies.
0: As a rider, um, why do people want to go on there and fill out their information? Is it just to connect, or, or do exactly what you were saying? You know, get uh, if they're sponsored, get the word out. But what about other riders?
1: Yeah, if you're sponsored, then it's a no-brainer. Um, for everybody else, I think it's the same reason that people blog and Facebook and Instagram and put ride reports on forums because they just want to share their their stories about the rides that they've been on.
0: The thing that I see that's interesting with this is is that it sort of takes a lot of riders together in one spot. So you can basically go to this page and look at the map of the world and, and just look around and you've got a mixture of everyone in there. And it's all people who are riding motorcycles, who are, who are into adventure riding, or is it all types of overlanding?
1: Uh, no, this is very specifically motorcycles.
0: So it makes it a really interesting thing to do, to go on there and just sort of cruise around, touch over the mileposts, and see what's going on in the different areas, who's posted what, and then be able to click to it. It, it seems like a sort of a, a, a central location, I guess, that if you're really interested in, in something in particular, then, like you'd mentioned, you follow the link from Overland Junction to their website, and then you go off and check out something specifically. But it's, it's a great place to sort of cruise the world and see what's going on.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's certainly the hope. So it's not trying to... And again, I'd like to stress this, is not about trying to, Overland Junction containing all of the content. That's not the point of it. It's about signposting, quite literally, milestones, signposting, to the content that is already out there that people have spent hours and hours writing and adding photographs to and, and so on. The content's out there already. It's just putting, the, you know, connecting them all together, putting them all together in geographical context.
0: Is there a membership fee or does anyone just go and sign up?
1: There is a membership fee, yeah. There there are four levels of of membership for for individual riders, Um, but it's it's extremely modest. Um, So from between $10 a year up to $50 a year, depending on how many milestones somebody thinks that they're likely to want to add to the map over the course of 12 months.
0: And what about a, a corporate sponsor or, or say, a, a company that is interested in trying to promote their products? Is there something there for them as well?
1: Yeah, for tour operators and, and brands, there are separate milestone membership options f- for those guys. And, and, of course, they're more expensive because it's a different proposition. But it means that they can add milestones that are related to people using their products
0: once you put them on, once you join here and you get a membership, you put on your milestones, you need to maintain that membership to keep those milestones in place?
1: The milestones will, let's say that somebody signs up for their first year and then either forgets about it or decides that they, they don't want to continue, their milestones will stay on the map. If a membership expires, then all of that information doesn't suddenly vanish. It stays there. But of course, it means they can't add new ones and they, they can't then access their favorites list and um, and so on.
0: Well, Ian, that's fantastic. I think people are going to have a lot of fun, especially with those mile posts. Thanks very much for coming on and telling us about your, your new Overland Junction.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Jim.
0: I've been speaking with Ian Harper from Overland Junction, and you can find out more about the website and you can sign up and get yourself some mile posts by visiting www.overlandjunction.com. <laughs> This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too, at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag. and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you need when you're exploring the world. Visit them at cyclepump.com That's cyclepump.com Well, just before we completely wrap things up for this week, um, I was going to let you know that we had a major equipment failure this week, which made putting this show together, let me just say, tedious, and that would be an extreme understatement. And if you um, hear the, the latest uh, episode of Raw when it comes out, you might hear some of us, some of the talk about that in there. Anyway, it's a, it's a big chunk of equipment. Uh, it's going to cost some bucks to replace it we would really appreciate it if you could drop by the website and give us a donation to help us replace this piece. If you can do it, it would be great. So drop by www.adventureriderradio.com, click on the donate button, and send us what you can. Anything's going to be a help. And we've got got some incentives there or some, some little gifts that we'll send back if you give certain amounts of money. So go by the website, have a look at it. Whatever you can do to help out, we would really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give special thanks to our advertisers, which is Max BMW, Best Rest Products, Giant Loop, and Arrow Stitch—all great companies to deal with. And of course, when you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio because they help bring the show to you. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can, you can connect through Facebook and Twitter with us. We're at Adv Rider Radio on Twitter, and on Facebook, you just have to search for Adventure Rider Radio, and you'll find is no problem at all i also want to give a special thanks to our co-producer elizabeth martin well now it's time to get out there and ride your bike i'm jim martin see you next week
3: hi this is linda bootherstone bick and um, you're listening to adventure rider radio and you have a nice day <laughs>